Luke 8, 1 to 3. And it came about soon afterwards that he began going about from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Well, in this passage, we have more examples of the different kinds of converts that are attracted to the gospel of Christ, different kinds of converts. And here, the emphasis is on women from different backgrounds, whether from a lowly background or from a high background. The lowly one, Mary Magdalene, uh, she had seven demons, and it's likely that she was a common woman. We do know from verse 3, Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's steward, she must have been a prominent woman because her husband was in the court of Herod. So she must have been wealthy and well-known. At least from those two examples, we know there's somebody from a low position and somebody from a high position. This, in conjunction with the preceding passage at the end of chapter 7, we saw there, there was a woman who was a sinner who converted. She had faith, although... Simon the Pharisee, who was a religious authority and likely more wealthy than this woman who was a sinner, he did not have faith. He did not believe. He was both a, a Pharisee and a man and would not believe. Well, this reminds us that the kingdom of God is for all kinds of people, whether they are male or female, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're kings or commoners, it doesn't matter what their background is. As long as they have true faith and true repentance in Christ, as long as they have that, they belong to Christ. They are His. This is what is illustrated here. But also, we have a few other things to note. Verse 1, it says that He was going about from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with Him. In the first verse, His ministry is from place to place. It's from place to place because this is how the gospel spreads. It spreads because missionaries and messengers, evangelists and pastors, they go from place to place to spread the gospel. It's not enough to just be in one place and expect everybody to come. We're also called on and compelled as true witnesses to go out and find places where people are willing to hear that gospel. As long as we can find people who are willing to hear it, we should find ways to go and administer the gospel to other places, not just stay within ourselves, but always be reaching out to other people. That we see right there. Jesus is our model and example for that. As well, it says in verse 1, He is proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. This is what is on His mind. This is what's on His lips. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is different from the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world are concerned about matters of this life. They're concerned about temporary issues. They're concerned about important issues like law and order, justice and righteousness and truth. They are concerned about those things. Peace, protecting one's own citizens as nations, those are valid in their own place. But they're nothing compared to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not only... God ruling over the nations of the world who are like a drop from a bucket, Isaiah chapter 40 says. But He has an eternal kingdom. He has a kingdom that 
will never end. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's the kingdom of God. And that's more important. That's why this was on the lips of Christ all the time. He was more concerned about that than anything else in the world. And everything in the world served for that end. Everything in the world he used for the end of preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. That was on his mind all the time. He sets an example for us that nothing should matter. It doesn't matter how tall I am, how famous I am, how much money I have, or how little money I have. It doesn't matter how handsome I am, how eloquent I am. It doesn't matter um, where I live. It doesn't, none of these kinds of temporary things matter. What really matters is if we know God and we proclaim the kingdom of God. That's all. Jesus was that way. The apostles were that way. The faithful of the Old Testament from Hebrews 11, they were that way. And even the faithful in the New Testament and throughout the history of Christianity, all the faithful had a, a laser uh, focus and razor sharp focus on the kingdom of God. This kingdom is the gospel. There are some interpreters, false prophets and teachers who say kingdom of God and the gospel are different. The gospel relates to eternal life and things of that nature, but the kingdom of God just relates to matters of society and justice, and they like to say social justice. They like to be champions of that, and the kingdom of God is that which is supposed to come from heaven to earth so that we live in a peaceful society where everybody has equal wealth and everybody has everything equal in, in life. This is what some false interpreters say about the kingdom of God in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. However, that's not what the Bible means. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, these two terms are equated. So, kingdom of God and gospel are the same thing, just a different way of expression for different implications. Verse 14, Mark 1, 14, And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's very clear from verses 14 and 15, gospel of God, kingdom of God, and gospel, or the gospel, are all the same thing, and everybody should know that it's imminent, it's right at hand, and they should repent and believe in that gospel. That's, that's all th that is intended by that expression, but by these expressions. Just a different way of saying the same thing. Kingdom of God, there is a dominion that God, the eternal, invisible God has, and we ought to have our life focused on that. Gospel, the good news of redemption that's available by believing in the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 explains that that's the meaning of the gospel. And who's with him? First, we're told in verse 1 that the twelve were with him. Now, these twelve were selected by Christ. They were appointed by Christ. They were the twelve apostles. As it says in uh, Matthew 10, 1-4, these twelve apostles were Appoint, uh, selected by Christ and appointed by Christ to have a special role during his ministry and also after his ministry except for Judas who hanged himself. So 
these 12 are with him. We see here a contrast that the 12 are with him, but also those women mentioned in verses 2 and 3 are with him. This is why we said earlier that the kingdom of God or the gospel is for everybody. Everybody means all kinds of people, all types of people. It doesn't matter what their station in life is or rank in life is. It's for them as long as they repent and believe. This is important to emphasize because these days we have people, even within Christian circles, so-called Christian circles, in, within Christianity saying uh, that, that we ought to pick fights and be contentious with people of different economic statuses or different races. They intentionally instigate and foment rebellion and animosity between one group and another. That has nothing to do with the gospel. That has to do with Satan. It has to do with the pit of hell. It has nothing to do with the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, to give uh, another example, 2, 11 to 22, actually says that Jew and Gentile are, have been at odds and at war with themselves and with God, but in Christ they are one because they belong to one gospel, to one Father, to one Christ, one Holy Spirit. They are one temple in the Lord. So therefore there should be no divisions like that. We should not be looking at people in those categories at all. If they're people, they're people. If they believe, they believe. And love your brother or love your neighbor as yourself. And thus fulfill the greatest commandment. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we shouldn't allow anybody to divide us. They do that maliciously. We should not let that happen. Then, Jesus, as is his custom during his ministry, he performed many miracles. And he even delivered some women, it says in verses 2 and 3, who had evil spirits and sicknesses. He delivered them and showed the grace of God and the mercy of God towards those women who had these afflictions. And we note in verse 2, Mary, who was called Magdalene, Magdalene because that was the city from which she came, and also to distinguish her, from other Marys mentioned in the Bible. The most prominent one is Mary, the mother of Jesus. So this is to distinguish her from other Marys. Mary was a common name. Mary actually is a shortened form of the Old Testament prophetess, sister of Moses and Aaron, Miriam. Miriam and Mary are the same name. It's just that one comes into English from the Greek New Testament and the other comes into English from the Hebrew Old Testament. This is a common name among uh, Jewish women. So, it says seven demons had gone out of her. Seven. Now, that's a very interesting point that's made. We note in Luke 11, Luke 11, 24 to 26, that her, uh, her situation must have been very deplorable and very bleak. Luke 11, 24. It says, when the unclean spirit goes out of man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This happens in demonic possession. It doesn't happen in every situation, but it does happen commonly enough that an evil spirit will possess a person, leave that person, 
and then go back to that person with other evil spirits more wicked, more wicked than itself and make that person's plight even worse than it was initially. So we can imagine that Mary must have been in a very, very miserable condition having seven evil spirits in her. But the Lord had mercy on her and delivered her from that. Verse 3 also mentions Joanna, Herod's steward. Herod's steward or manager. He must have been close to Herod because it says here she is following him and by implication Huzzah is not following him. The wife of Huzzah is, but he is not. He is presumably still with Herod in the court, helping him. And the Herods at the time were known to be very, very uh, cunning and malicious kings. The Herods in this period, for the, uh, for the most part, that's how they were known. So it's likely that the husband wanted to keep himself attached to Herod rather than go with his wife. His wife is going with Christ. And as we think of the situation, normally speaking, in the Bible, the wife should stay with her husband. She should not leave her husband. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 teaches us that. Especially the first half of the chapter teaches us that the wife should stay with her husband even though the husband's an unbeliever and the wife is a believer. And also, the, the opposite is true. If the wife is a believer, I mean, if the husband's a believer and the wife is an unbeliever, the husband should stay with his wife. But here we have, it seems, a separation. And I think it would have occurred because she was a believer and he was an unbeliever and something happened in that situation. We don't know if he drove her out of the house or not. We don't know. But there is some kind of problem that has arisen. Here then we see Mary... Joanna and Susanna, and it says many others, and many others who probably had situations similar to these, many others that these people, no matter what their background was, whether they came from a low place or a high place, they were grateful and they were dedicated. We see those two things there. They were grateful and they were dedicated. They were grateful for what God had done in their life and dedicated because they're following Christ. And in this case, Joanna was willing to leave the court, uh, the court of the king, Herod the king, to leave all that and all of the wealth and the recognition and the pleasures and the comforts that that entails to go follow Christ. Not only do we see that, but notice as a part of their gratitude and dedication, it says in verse 3, who were contributing to their support out of their private means. They knew that Jesus and the apostles and the others, they needed some support while they went from place to place, from city to city and village to village. They needed monetary help. They needed to be able to sustain the ministry. So what did they do? They gave out of their private means. They knew in gratitude what God had done and they knew that the spiritual benefit they had received far exceeds any material financial benefit that they're giving for the promotion of the ministry. They knew that because they had a heart of gratitude. This is the way of a true believer. A true believer understands this and contributes like this. 
It says in Galatians chapter 6, Galatians 6, 6, And let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Notice that. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. There we have Paul reiterating the same truth that is uh, exemplified here in these people following Christ and the Apostles. Then, our next section is the famous parable of the sower. We actually have the sower, the seed, and the soil. Three main elements in this parable, verses 4 to 15. We'll first read actually verses 4 to 8, and then we'll read the interpretation in the subsequent paragraph. And when a great multitude were coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Another seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And other seed fell into the good ground, and it grew up, and produced the crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 4, When a great multitude were coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. We'll notice here that whenever a crowd assembles, Jesus, John, and many others in the scriptures have a tendency to stiff-arm the crowds. That's what we're going to see here. When they see the crowds coming, they're not going overboard with boxes of candy or anything like that to satisfy the crowds. They're not doing that. In fact, they say things and force things upon the crowd to make it hard for them to follow Christ. This is the pattern in the Bible. Just because a crowd assembles does not mean that the preacher is teaching the truth. It depends on the content of the preacher's message. This is what's going on here. So, and we'll see the explanation of it in a few minutes. They're coming around from the various cities. Jesus had been going around to these cities. And some here, some there, they're all following him. So when they come together... He speaks a parable. A parable in the Bible is just another term for an illustration. It's an illustration. You can call it a riddle. You, you could say that it's just an example. What, what these are are physical life examples intended to illustrate unseen eternal truths, spiritual truths. So that which is physical and common and readily accessible and understood in real life, people know how things work. Those things are used to compare with uh, heavenly and spiritual things. That's all a parable is. Now, if that's all that it is, 
But then the next question is, why are certain parables saying one thing or another? And in this case, you can tell that there's four kinds of ground. There's one seed, one sower or farmer scattering the seed, but there is four kinds of soil. From this announcement of the parable, it's not self-evident what Jesus is talking about. Right? It's not self-evident. It's not obvious and plain what he's talking about. What we do gather is there's one sower or farmer who's scattering seed, and we do know from verse 5 that some fell on the road. We know from verse 6, some of the seed fell on the rocky soil. Verse 7, some fell on the thorny soil. And in verse 8, some fell in the good ground. The good ground, which is distinct and different from the preceding three. And what that which fell on the good ground grew up and produced a crop. The others did not produce a crop. There was no produce. There was no fruit from the rest of the grounds. Only this fourth one. And it says a hundred times as great. So, even more than what was expected in the planting or sowing of that seed. A hundred times as great. But then, verse 8 says, As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this has more than one purpose. When he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear, naturally, when somebody says that, those hearing it have to ask, what does he mean by that? Why does he say that? And do I have ears to hear or not? So it should make everybody ask the question, do I have ears to hear or not? Is he talking about, do I have physical ears? No, that's not his ultimate point. He knows that his ears are hearing it physically. Everybody has these ears. But the real issue is, if you are hearing the words audibly, are you believing them spiritually? Are you believing them with spiritual ears? That's the real issue. Those hearing it must ask that question. Some will hear it. They might think about that phrase for a minute, and then they'll deflect, and then their mind will race into, in, into another direction and have no concern about what they just heard. But others will actually hear it and be convicted and say, I better contemplate what I just heard. I better believe what I just heard. I better obey what I just heard. That's what those with true spiritual ears will do when they hear this statement. And whenever they hear the Word of God otherwise, they will ask those questions for their own benefit, for their own soul's benefit. So now... He did not explain. So naturally, there will be some confusion. There will be some perplexity as to what was meant by this parable. Verse 9. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable might be. And he said, To you it is granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables in order that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Verse 10. Verse 10 is a very important verse. His disciples, and actually 
um, from Matthew and Mark. In Matthew 13, 1 to 23, and Mark 4, 1 to 20, we have a parallel account of what we have here in Luke 8, 4 to 15. And Matthew is the, the lengthiest to explain verse 10 to us. He gives us more words of verse 10. But let's see what verse 10 says here. He says, And he said, To you it is granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. To you, you who are questioning me privately, to you it is granted to know. When the Bible says it is granted, it's using in grammar the passive voice. Often the theologians and grammarians will speak of the theological passive or the divine passive, meaning that when something is said like this, it is granted, who is the one granting it? We do know who the recipient is. It is here, in this case, the disciples. They are the recipients. They are the beneficiaries. But who is granting it? Who is giving it to them? Who is bestowing this knowledge or, and understanding to them? It's God. That's why the grammarians and theologians call it a theological passive. It is God. Uh, another example of this, a clear one, is Matthew 7, 7 to 11. Ask, and it shall be given to you. He's encouraging us to pray, right? Ask, and it shall be given to you. Well, when we ask the Lord, who's going to give it to us? The Lord. It shall be given. He doesn't say Lord explicitly, but it's understood. It's implied. We do know, because it's obvious, God is the one who's going to give it. In the same way here, it is God who grants. If God is granting then it removes all pride. It removes all boasting. There is no ground to be arrogant and to say that I am better than another because there is nothing in us for God to give it to us. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who regards you as superior, and what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The point in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 is, if we receive something from God, then there's no grounds for boasting. There's no grounds at all. Instead, we ought to be grateful. That's what the, the apostles and the women in the preceding passage understood. They were grateful and dedicated because they knew the debt that God had paid on their behalf in Christ. So here, it's granted. This also shows the granting of it to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The granting of it has to be because of predestination. It has to be on the basis of God's choice and election. It has to be on that basis. It cannot be on any other basis. And it says here, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. See, for the common man... He will not understand the truths of the kingdom, the truths of the gospel, and embrace them for his salvation. He may understand certain facts of the matter, but he will not understand so as to arouse faith and repentance for his own soul's benefit. That doesn't happen to everybody. It only happens to those who are chosen of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. 
Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. There's our term again. In a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Notice that, to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They did not understand it because they weren't predestined to understand it. And because they weren't predestined to understand it, they crucified the Lord of glory. But God predestined this to our glory, according to verse 7. That's what Jesus means in Luke 8.10. To you it is granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But notice, but to the rest, it is in parables. The rest of the people, they get it in parables because the intention of giving it to them in parables is to make it cloudy and murky for them. Because he says, in order that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. You see, Jesus is saying the purpose of parables for the crowds is to make them unable to see and, and unable to hear. He didn't say the purpose is to make them able to see and able to hear. No, for those who have been endowed by the uh, grace of God, or with the grace of God, to have this ability to understand and believe it, to them they see it, they hear it, they embrace it, they believe it, they repent of their sins, but not the crowds. And this is why Jesus spoke in parables to the crowds, to make it cloudy and dark and mysterious to them so that they cannot discover the true meaning and receive it wholeheartedly. They cannot. Notice as well in verse 10, it says, in order that, in order that. Mark also uses this preposition, um, uh, purposive preposition or conjunction, in order that. Mark does in Mark 4, 1 to 20. Uh, many years ago when I was taking a, a Bible class at a seminary, my professor took pains in Mark, I remember because the professor was in Mark, took pains to tell us that this is not explaining purpose, but it, it is explaining result. That this is just what happens. It just happens that whenever the gospel preaches, this is just the response. Some people believe and some others don't, but there's no causality in God. That was the point the professor made. God is not making this happen or causing this to happen, but when I read it in Mark and in Luke here, in order that, and even Matthew's lengthy explanation in Matthew 13, 10 to 17, his explanation, it didn't read that way. And I didn't know any Greek, but since then I learned Greek and I know that the preposition, the Greek preposition is a purposive preposition. The purpose that God had was to make them not see and make them not understand. It's not just explaining the circumstances or the result of the situation. It's explaining God caused it to happen that way. That's exactly what Jesus taught. He did it intentionally. Now this raises the question, which is often asked. Um, many times 
we we com uh, we condemn the frivolous preaching of our day, and we say that the pastors are sharing anecdotes. They're, they're sharing personal incidents and stories. They're talking about their families, their dogs, their television set, their favorite baseball team or football team or hunting trip. They're talking about golf. They're talking about sewing and psychology and sociology. They talk about all kinds of stuff from the pulpit. And they justify it by saying Jesus spoke in parables. And we have to speak in illustrations to help people understand spiritual truths. That assumes, however, that the purpose of the parables was to illustrate and make it clear for as many people as possible and to make it so clear that they embrace the gospel. But that's not the purpose of the parables. We just, see, we just saw that in Luke 8, verse 10, that that's not the purpose of the parables. In fact, the purpose of the parables may even lead to our demise. It may even lead to our demise if we're preaching the parables properly, if we're preaching illustrations properly. For example, Jesus had announced uh, parables, and in Luke 19, Luke 19, verse 47, it says, And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging upon his words. And also, Luke 20, after he announced the parable of the vine growers, in Luke 20, verse 19, and the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Jesus spoke that parable against them. Since when does the modern preacher's illustration cause the person in the audience to desire the death of the preacher? It doesn't happen. In fact, it increases his popularity and it makes his wallet and bank account fatter. That's what it does. But it does not cause them to hate him and try to destroy him. So there is no connection. There is no proper connection or corollary between the modern illustrations that are frivolous and fickle. There's nothing like that to compare with the parables. The parables do not have that same purpose. Now let's see the true meaning of it. Luke 8, 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God and those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. And the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, it's clear from this passage and the parallels in Matthew 13 and Mark 4 that 
the first three grounds or the first three types of soils, they do not produce any fruit and they illustrate unbelievers, different kinds of unbelievers. The only soil that shows a true believer is the fourth soil. The first one is the rhodi soil, we'll call it that. The second one is the rocky, the third is the thorny, and the fourth, the goodly, the goodly that produce fruit. Notice what he says in verse 12 about the rhodi ones. The rhodi soil, the devil comes, so before that, they're sown beside the road. These are those who have heard. These people have heard. We're not talking about people who don't hear the word, who don't hear the gospel. We're talking about those who do hear the gospel. Then it says, the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. He's addressing this, remember, he's addressing this parable to the multitudes. The multitudes are the ones who hear it, but it doesn't stick with them. It goes in their heart in the sense that they comprehend certain words and phrases. It stays there temporarily. They know Jesus is talking about God. He's not, talk, he's not talking about palaces or temples. He's not talking about any, anything else like that. He's talking about God. They know that. So in that sense, it's in their heart. In that sense, they can comprehend a little bit about what he's talking about. But what happens? The devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. He takes it away. He takes it away quickly so that they don't muse on it. They don't ponder it. They don't have any conviction. They don't say, I better keep on. I better hold on to this. I better make sure I understood what he said. I better go find somebody who understands. I better go ask so-and-so what it means. I better go find the Bible and start reading it. They don't do anything like that. What they hear is taken away by the devil from the heart. He's able to penetrate our inner being and remove it. He removes it from the heart so that they may not believe and be saved. Luke clearly tells us, verse 12, that the purpose is that they not believe and be saved. This is clearly soil that never had salvation. They don't believe, they're not saved. Even though it came into their heart temporarily. Verse 13. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. Here we have in 13, the rocky soil. They too hear it. They hear it. They receive the word with joy. Now, don't be tripped up with this. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 5.21-5.16-26, to, to, The deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It is true. But there's different kinds of joy. Sometimes we distinguish worldly and earthly joy by saying, you can be happy but not have joy. Well, that's what Jesus means here. They have this temporary happiness, this temporary um, excitement about what they heard, 
but it's not lasting and true excitement produced by the Holy Spirit. It's not the joy of the Holy Spirit. If it were the joy of the Holy Spirit, it would have remained. But they have, as he calls it here, no firm root. If they don't have a firm root, then how in the world are they going to produce any fruit? No root, no fruit, right? What, what tree produces fruit without a root? So they don't produce fruit. And this joy cannot be the joy of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be that at all. It's that which is temporary and fickle. It lasts a day or a couple of days and then it goes away. That's the kind of joy he's talking about. And he says so, verse 13, they believe for a while. If they believed permanently, they would be in category, uh, in the fourth category of verse 15, which says, they heard it in an honest and good heart, hold it fast, bear fruit with perseverance. That's not them. So they're not believers. They're not true believers who produce fruit. Because in time of temptation, they fall away. There's many temptations that can make somebody fall away. It could be persecution. It could be uh, scoffing from relatives and friends. It could be the riches of the world. It could be afflictions of the world. It could be any number of things that attract this temporary believer and then he does not produce any fruit. He just falls away and he stays away. He has no concern for the things of God. One who falls away is not one who fell away from truly embracing the gospel, but one who gave lip service to the gospel and fell away from that profession. This person is a professor of faith. He's not a confessor of faith. A professor of faith gives lip service to it, but his life doesn't match it. It doesn't live up to it. It does not endure until the end. He's describing that kind of person. They are the ones who fall away. Verse 14, And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. The thorny soil. They hear it as well. Then they go on their way. And what happens? They make evidently some progress because it says they bring no fruit to maturity. There is some attempt. There is something that's happening in the, the plant. But there is no fruit to maturity. There is no good fruit. If there were fruit to maturity, then that would be good fruit. But they don't produce it. Therefore, they don't produce the fruit of the Spirit. They have no fruit. And what does it? It is the weeds. It's the weeds or the tares. Because being among the thorns or the weeds, the thorns and the thistles, they are choked with worries. What worries people? Their health and their wealth. They're worried about their health and their wealth. And here he says, riches, they are covetous people. They see what others have and they want it. They want it. They want to pounce on what others have to have it for themselves. They're greedy, covetous, they hoard. That's what they want. 
Either they have it and they're pursuing it that way, or they want to be in the position of others who have these riches. Pleasures of this life. Pleasures. There are people who live day by day with many kinds of pleasures. They want to gratify the flesh. They want to gratify their senses all the time. Their ears, their eyes, their mouths, their nose, their, whatever other parts of their bodies they will use for pleasures, they will use them to the utmost. And they will go on long journeys to gratify pleasures. They'll spend much money to gratify their pleasures. They'll do whatever it takes. They'll even go on arduous trips to do this or that to gratify their pleasures. These are the people who bring no fruit to maturity. No fruit. Here too. These people are not true believers. They cannot be. It's very clear. Verse 12, they not believe, they're not saved. Verse 13, they have no root, therefore there's no fruit. They believe for a while, then they fall away when temptations come. Verse 14, they're among the thorns. They bring no fruit to maturity. There's no fruit. There is no fruit of the Holy Spirit. Then verse 15. This is the only kind of soil that produced fruit. Verse 15. And the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance. This fourth soil, they hear it also, so it's necessary to hear it. But when they hear it, they hear it in an honest and good heart. They hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now tell me, when was the last time the ground, the good ground, produced itself? When was the last time good ground made sure that they had plenty of water? They made sure that they had plenty of sunlight that they made sure that they had plenty of fertilizer. Does the ground do that? No. Well, that's just like us. You see, in our natural condition, we are just like verses 12 to 14. So this implies that God has to make a dead, stony heart that cannot produce any fruit. He has to make it alive and He has to make it tender so that it can receive the Word the seed, it can receive it properly, it can embrace it properly, it can sink in, it can be received in an honest and good heart, not an evil heart, and not a dishonest heart, that comes and hears the word for malicious and evil purposes, dishonest purposes. It comes with an honest and good heart. God changes the heart and makes it receptive to the seed sown, the seed of the word sown. And when that happens, it's embraced, they hold it fast, that is, they cling on to it, and they bear fruit with perseverance. There is fruit. This is the first time and the only time that Jesus announces that there is any fruit. And that fruit is with perseverance. That's emphasized here because it's in contrast to verses 12 to 14. None of those soils had perseverance. Perseverance is a key trait of a true believer. Matthew 24, 13. He who endures till the end shall be saved. 
If there's no endurance, there's no salvation. It's a characteristic of the truly saved. Let's see how Hebrews 6 illustrates the same parable. Hebrews 6, verses 6 to 8. Hebrews 6, 6. Actually, let's begin at verse uh, 3. Hebrews 6, verse 3. We'll see that here, there's two outcomes. There's either a curse or there's a blessing. And my interpretation is that from the parable, the first three soils, all three soils, they are the ones that receive a curse. But the fourth ground is the good ground that produces fruit, and it, that one receives a blessing. So Hebrews 6, verse 3. And this we shall do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Do you see the two outcomes? Verse 7, there's a blessing. and verse 8, there's a curse. And verses 4 to 6 describes those who have heard the word, they have had access to many heavenly things, but they don't embrace those things. They fall away from those things. Which expression, fall away, we also found in Luke 8, verse 13. So, if there is a falling away, there's no endurance, there's no blessing. It's not one uh, kind of ground that receives a blessing. Only that which produces receives a blessing. So what Hebrews 6 is teaching is, in a nutshell, also what is taught in uh, Luke 8. There's either a blessing or there's a curse. The, there's three kinds of grounds that produce a curse. Now, a couple of points of clarification. Jesus is not teaching that whenever the gospel is preached, one-fourth of the people listening will believe. He's not teaching 25% of the people will always believe. He's not saying that. What he's saying is there's four types of reactions to it. There's four types of reactions. He's not saying there's um, a percentage, 25% each. He's not talking about percentage. He's talking about different kinds of reactions. We might also say um, that in this parable... Even though Luke says in, in Luke 8.15, uh, excuse me, Luke 8.15, which is parallel to Luke 8.8, 8, that the good ground produced hundred times as great, he's not saying that necessarily every believer produces the same amount of fruit. We know that from Matthew 13. Matthew 13.23, And the one on whom seed was sown on the good ground this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. There will be some believers who produce thirtyfold, 
and other believers who produce 60-fold, and others who produce 100-fold. Not every believer produces the same amount of fruit in his life. However, every believer does produce fruit. He does produce fruit. And if he does not produce fruit, he's one of the other three types of soil, who hears but does not truly believe. And lastly, this is another of the many examples in Scripture that it is the remnant that shall be saved. It is the elect believing remnant that is saved. The vast majority of people who have ever lived will go to hell because they don't believe the gospel. And even the vast majority of people within Christendom go to hell because they don't truly believe the gospel. Doesn't it say here that every, every category of soil heard the word? There are many people in churches, and especially big churches, who have a false faith. They don't truly believe what they're hearing. And even what they're hearing is not a pure gospel. They're hearing a little gospel here, a little gospel there, but they're not hearing the true gospel. In many cases, it's distorted and mangled gospel. It's not the true gospel. So they're not saved. You have to be saved by the word of Christ. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If we truly believe in the gospel of Christ as presented, as presented in scripture, then we are believers. And then our life will show it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Father in heaven, give us, give every one of us, a good and honest heart. Enable us to believe, to receive your word, and water that word, Lord, and may it bear fruit. Give us your Holy Spirit and fill us. Produce in us, produce in our loved ones, produce in the ones for whom we pray daily salvation. Give them salvation, and may your word spread. May the gospel spread throughout the world because of us. In Jesus' name.